Helps if I remember to switch on. Morning, everybody. Morning. Woo! We've got some energy. Awesome. Um, yeah, if you're new, welcome. Lovely to have you with us. Always excited to see some new faces. God is doing some cool things in our church. Uh, and, and forgive us for being a little bit excited about it. Um, we're, uh, we've just launched last week a series on Zechariah, and so if you're thinking, why on earth are you preaching Zechariah, that's why. Uh, uh, we as a church, we've spent a lot of time in the New Testament, so I was like, let's jump back into the Old Testament. Um, Zechariah is a book that outlines the gospel. Uh, it is just, it's one of those Old Testament passages that's quoted left, right, and center through Scripture. So there's lots of good content in there. And then if you just, uh, once we dig into this and understand what this book is about, we're going to see that where we're at in the life of this church and what God is doing here, this book is completely relevant to where we're at. So we're going to jump into some crazy content starting this week, which is really fun. But before we go there, I want to give some like Bible 101 stuff that we need to just make sure we have in our minds as we're looking at the scriptures. So um, this is hermeneutics is the, the theological word we use for the framework that we use to read the scriptures. And so there's some interpretive challenges that come anytime we open the Bible. And it gets a little bit crazier when we're looking at prophetic literature like Zechariah. So just by way Way of reminder, we've talked about this before, but what do we need to address when it comes to looking back at the biblical text and making it relevant today? So first of all, what does the text say? Plain and simple, we open the Bible and we're just asking the question, what does the Bible say? And that's the simplicity of it, right? Question number two, which is the one that we skip a lot of the time when we come to the Bible and we're trying to understand its relevance for today. We tend to read, it says this, and then we jump to this is what it means for me. So the second question that we really got to wrestle with, and even more so when you're looking at symbolic literature like this, is how would this have been understood by its original audience? So not what do we think all of these symbols mean today, but when they read this description of the vision that Zechariah had, what would they naturally have understood? And we've got to wrestle through what it meant to them in their context. And once we understand that, then we can jump forward and ask the question, okay, now, now that we understand what it meant for them, what does it mean and what are the implications for us today? So this is what we're going to have to keep doing over and over each week of this series as we're looking at these visions and the symbolism of them and asking the question, how did they understand it? And then what does it mean for us today? Because this, this content, just remember, written to a specific group of people at a particular time in history. We talked about it last week. These are the post-exilic prophets. So Israel has been in exile for 70 years. And so Zechariah and the visions that God is giving him are speaking directly to that context. So that's, that's the Bible in general. But what do we do when it comes to symbolic literature? Um, uh, sometimes we'll refer to this as apocalyptic literature. We'll sit in places like Revelation and look at all the crazy that's in there. A couple of rules to keep in mind. Number one, let the text and the context interpret the symbols. So we're going to, over the next eight weeks, we're going to be looking at eight different visions that Zechariah had. The temptation is to give each of the symbols in the visions meaning that doesn't exist. So we've got to look at the text and say, what does the text say and what does the context of the text help us to understand about what the symbols mean and what we're going to read? Number two, don't overanalyze the symbols. The coolest messages to preach 
are the ones where you can be like, there's this symbol, and let me tell you all this stuff that it means. And it looks like, you know, a whole lot of stuff. A lot of the time, it doesn't mean the things that we're saying it means. So we don't want to overanalyze and give meaning to the text that isn't there. And then the last one, which is where we need to be more cautious, is don't reach to another place in Scripture and be like, this symbol's over here, therefore, if Revelation describes a horse this way, then that means when Zechariah is talking about a horse, it must mean this. Revelation came a heck of a lot later after Zechariah, so he wasn't thinking about Revelation when he wrote it, right? So we've got to make sure that we're not taking symbolism from other parts of the Bible and then importing it into the passage that we're reading. We can use other parts of the Bible to inform how we understand the Scriptures. And as you've seen me do multiple times when things come up, I'm like, this reminds me of this passage and this passage and this passage. That's allowed, but we've got to do our work in each passage to make sure we're interpreting things in their context as they were intended to the original audience so that we can then bring that into today and ask what's it mean for us. So good little like hermeneutics overview before we jump into today because today's fun. Um, we're going to look at Zechariah's first vision. And so last week we looked at the message that Zechariah opened up with, a call to return to the Lord with the promise that if God's people returned to him, he would return to them. Uh, and then a couple of years later, you have this evening uh, where, where Zechariah has all of these visions in one night. There's eight of them. So today we're going to look at the first one and we're going to ask the question, what the heck does this mean for us here in Hillsborough today? So let's read Zechariah chapter 1, starting at verse 7. We're going to read through verse 17. Um, with all of that interpretive stuff in the background, let's read this and, and we'll see what it means. So, on the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, or some people will call him Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. So, a little pause there. Just remember, as we talked about last week, we can actually historically date this precisely. So, we look at that and we go, 24th day, what the heck does this mean? We're talking about February, 9th, February 15th. 519 BC. So we have a specific day in the historical calendar that Zechariah was about to go to bed and have these visions. And just for context, um, you've got Haggai, you've got Zechariah, you've got Malachi, the post-exilic prophets who are prophesying together. Um, Malachi is a little bit later, but Haggai is the one saying, hey, go back and rebuild. Then they start rebuilding and it doesn't really go to plan. And then Zechariah comes on the scene. So this day is about two months after Haggai does his final two oracles telling the people of Israel that God's presence is going to return, and in the process, the whole world is going to be shaken up. So Haggai has just finished those oracles two months later. Here's Zechariah, a much younger prophet, in bed, not quite sleeping yet, but then these visions come. So that's the context and the historical dating of this. So here's what happens. During the night, I had a vision, and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse, he was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, what are these, my Lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are, or, or actually, I will cause you to see and understand what these are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord sent to go out throughout the whole earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, we've gone throughout the earth and we've found the whole world at rest and in peace. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you've been angry with these 70 years? 
So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says, my towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Um, so let me just prepare you of the eight visions we're going to look at. This is the straightforward one. So this is the first of eight visions happening in one night. So we're going to spend a little bit of time and just ask the question, how would the original audience have understood this? And then from there, what does this mean for us? So the vision begins with this figure sitting on a horse. He's in a valley and there's three other horses behind or riders behind him. And as this dialogue happens and, and, and Zechariah is like, tell me what this means, the angel says, these are the ones the Lord has sent throughout the earth. So the original audience hearing this vision understood this to mean that God is attentive. So the God that we serve, we know this. We know in here, we don't always know in here, right? This God that we serve is attentive to us. And, and you're going to find in Zechariah, as you read, if you have a Bible that has the little center column with all of the cross-references, Zechariah is like pulling from Scripture left, right, and center. And there are all of these allusions throughout to things that were important to their context. And one of the allusions that we see in here in this vision, if you remember the story of Job, how does Job start? There's this man who's really, really righteous. He's living this great life, spotless and blameless. And then there's this moment where Satan and the angels come before the Lord. And God says, what have you been doing? He says, I've been patrolling back and forth throughout the earth. And I've noticed this one man. So this is part of their heritage, the understanding that God uses angels who go back and forward across the earth as part of his attentiveness to what's going on and, and their readiness to do the things that he's calling them to do. So this statement, there's these, does it matter that they're men on horses? Does it matter their colors? Does it matter where they're standing? Not right now. The main thing is God is attentive to what's going on. He sees the state of the world and he's aware of the plight of, of Israel. Why does it matter? Remember, they're in exile. So these people are in exile. Well, they're not anymore. They were in exile. They've just made it back to Jerusalem. They started building the temple. Now, because of opposition, a bunch of discouragement, they've stopped. And so they're sitting in this place where the, the work that they wanted to do is unfinished. The world around them seems at peace. And they're going, what the heck is going on? Uh, and so Zechariah in this vision, it starts by letting them know, God is attentive. He knows your situation, even if it doesn't seem like it. Even if it doesn't feel he's aware of what's going on in the world, even if it doesn't feel like he's watching your situation, he does. And I'm sure you all are aware of that feeling, right? We've all had those moments where we are, uh, where something is going on in our life. We could talk about the last two years, uh, but we've all had those moments where something's going on in our life and we're like, does God even see me? Does he know the plight that I'm going through? Does he understand that I have these dreams and desires and they're unfulfilled? We know this feeling. This vision wants us to understand God is attentive and his angels patrol the earth to make sure God understands everything that's going on and that they're ready at any moment to act on his behalf. 
In this passage, um, and all the way through Zechariah, the primary name that's related to this, the primary name that's used through Zechariah is this name, Yahweh Tzabaot, um, which Bibles will translate different ways. We commonly know it as the Lord of hosts. Some of our translations will say the Lord Almighty. Some of them will say the Lord of armies. Some of the newer translations will translate this specifically, the Lord of heaven's armies. And this is the, the favorite uh, the favorite title used by Isaiah and Jeremiah. So it's used like 80-ish times in Isaiah and Jeremiah and then like 60 times in, uh, in Zechariah. So this is these three major prophetic figures. Love this title. Why? Um, it's a military language. This word sabaot, referring to hosts or armies, really means multitudes. So it's this reference to God's ability to command multitudes of people. Uh, and I think what some of the translations go, okay, it's God, so the multitudes that he is, is overseeing are the heavenly multitudes, so this is the Lord of the angelic armies. Um, but we know from the context of the Old Testament, too, that when he's the Lord of armies, we've just read the history of, of Israel by this point. He's taken the army of Egypt and used them to orchestrate his will with, with Israel. He's taken the Assyrian army and used them to orchestrate his will. He's taken the Babylonian army and used them to orchestrate his will. And at this point, it's the Persian army. So whether it's the Lord of the angelic armies or the Lord of the earthly armies, at the end of the day, what's the statement? God is in control of it all. He has the power to command who he wants. And at any moment, he can take a heavenly or a human figure and use them to orchestrate his will. So this is the, the, the name that Zechariah is going to call on all the time. Look, Israel, you feel like everything's a mess, but remember, it's the Lord of armies that we're calling out to. It's him that's attentive to you. And again, where you're sitting right now, whatever is going on in your life, however discouraged you feel, however many times you're saying, why is this thing happening? It's the Lord of heaven's armies that is waiting ready for our hearts to respond to him and, and him to pour out his command that will cause them to move throughout the earth. Um, so, so just have that in mind with everything that's going on in this passage as he's talking to these angels. They represent these armies of the Lord that are ready to be sent out. So let me, let me look at this little context a little bit more and, and talk about some of the symbols that are here. So Zechariah 1, he asks, what are these, my Lord, these men on, on horses. He says, I'll show you what they are. The man standing among the myrtle trees explained, these are the ones that the Lord sent to go throughout the whole earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, we've gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. So this is one of these passages where we have to be very careful not to attribute meaning to symbols that wouldn't have been understood in the early context. So you've got these riders on horses and it tells you there's like a, a red one and a white one and a black one. And then typically what people do is, well, Revelation chapter 6, there are these four men on horses that God sends out. The horses have different colors. And we also have to remember that we're dealing in this passage with Hebrew descriptions of the colors. In Revelation, we're dealing with Greek descriptions of the colors, and those things don't necessarily line up. So what a Hebrew person says when they mean red or sorrel or chestnut, the New Testament writer may have been meaning pillar box red. So uh, we, we can't cross-correlate that. So, so the colors are not significant because the passage does not say they're significant. When you go into the book of Revelation, it describes each of the horses, and then it says the red horse means this. 
The black horse means this. The the ash-colored horse means this. So the writer has not given us that in this passage. So we don't want to jump to other places in Scripture and import significance to this that the writer has not given us and that the audience would not have understood. So we don't need to worry about the colors. Um, The myrtle trees. This one's interesting. Like, (laughs) go grab some commentaries on Zechariah and read. Like, there's like a million arguments about what all of these things represent. So myrtle is, uh, if you don't know it, quite often translated in English as laurel wood, and so evergreen trees. And so we understand through Scripture the significance of the evergreen and what that means as it represents the nation of Israel. You've got this group that have been exiled, cut off from God's people. Usually a tree cut off would not be evergreen, right? Um, and so there, there is some symbolism in this of, of the richness and the futility and the life that God is promising to the nation of Israel. There's questions in here about the location. In ancient Near Eastern literature, so that's when you go back to the time of the Bible and before it, in ancient Near Eastern literature, a myrtle tree represented the crossover point uh, from earth to the abode of the gods. And so they may, when they heard this, have, have thought this guy is standing at the intersection between heaven and earth, which is interesting because he's standing right outside of Jerusalem where they're waiting on the temple being rebuilt. So there may be significance in that. Um, the other part is, is lots of commentators, as they're looking at this, go, he's in a valley with myrtle trees. This sounds a lot like the Kidron Valley, which surrounds like a quarter of Jerusalem. And if that's true, then you've got this situation where God is saying, you're supposed to be building the temple in Jerusalem where I'm going to inhabit. So that's my house. But right now, I'm stuck on the outskirts of Jerusalem in the valley because you've not finished building the house that I'm supposed to be residing in. Um, Lots of debate in there, but what it is, the answer is, we have no idea. So you can take any, it may just be the, the evergreen image, Or it may be that there's more significance to thinking about the intersection between heaven and earth that the Jerusalem temple represents. It may mean that they're on the outskirts of Jerusalem and God is unable to enter and inhabit his place because people are not living the way that he's called them to live. Uh, I think there's some important significance there that would fit the context, but we don't know. So it's cool to just think about. Uh, In this passage, he talks about the report to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. This is going to come up all the way through Zechariah, so I'm going to mention it. The angel of the Lord is a confusing figure when it comes to Scripture. This, 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 uh, This title refers to multiple kind of different people, or we have multiple interpretations about who the angel of the Lord is. So on one side, you've got the angel of the Lord is just an angel, A very specific angel that represents God and mediates between him and the earth. Um, On the other side, you've got this understanding, which comes up multiple places in Scripture, that this angel of the Lord actually is the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. So this could be that Jesus himself is appearing to Zechariah before before he's Jesus, uh, the second person of the Trinity appearing as the angel of the Lord to minister the word of God to Zechariah. So we don't know. And again, I, I want us to understand, why am, I, why am I saying this stuff? And then be like, I don't know. Because I want us to understand that this stuff is not as clear as some of the people will tell you it is. Um, and what we tend to do with the scriptures is we come to it and go, oh, I heard this thing once, this means it's true. Uh, we've got to have humility when we come to the text, understand what it does say for sure, and then hold open-handedly the things that are interesting 
and we say it the way we're saying it. You know, there are these options we don't know. I like this one because it sounds cool. It would be awesome. It would be awesome if this meant that Zechariah has this vision of the second person of the Trinity standing in the valley outside of Jerusalem, unable to enter his temple because God's people are failing in the job that he's been called to do. That would be awesome. Uh, may not be that, but last piece in here that I want to draw attention to is, uh, we, again, we import terminology from other parts of the scriptures. We import understanding from other things we've heard. This pa passage finishes, we've gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Now, if you've been around the church for any length of time, you hear the word peace and we think shalom. This means like everything that God wants to happen on the earth. That's not the word that is at play here. Um, this is a word that means to rest, to be still, to be undisturbed. The word shalom means to everything in the world to be the way God intended it to be, right? Relationship with God, with humanity, and with creation. So this is, they're going through the world, and they're just seeing that things are still, nothing is disturbed, and this is not talking about the peace that we're promised that we have in Christ, and there's a little clue there. Um, so don't try and import the language of shalom into this passage yet. And now I'm going to do just that, right? <laughs> the peace that's been described at this part of the passage is not a good thing. We're going to see in a minute the angel of the Lord is going to be like, how long has this gone on? Um, I want to look at Jeremiah 29 because this is the context that Zechariah is aware of. He's listened and read Isaiah. He's listened and he's read to Jeremiah. And we know Jeremiah 29 because we know verse 11, right? It's on all the little... I won't say what you call them, eh, Jackie, um, on all the little plaques that we get to have sitting around our house. But, you know, I know the plans I have for you, says Lord. Sorry, she was making fun of me earlier. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you. So we know that part of the passage, but I, I want to break up Jeremiah 29, 11. We're going to look at part of it now and a part of it later. But just to understand that the context that Zechariah is familiar with and how it relates to, to what he's prophesying at this moment and the vision he's, he's understanding. So this is 29.11. This is what the Lord Almighty said. The God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So you've had this promise that, I mean, I don't know if we like the word promise. We have this conditional promise that God gives. Walk with me, and I'll lead you into the promised land, and things will go well. Disobey me, and I'm going to send you into exile. And so we're at this point where the nation, with Jeremiah, the nation's been sent into, Israel, into exile, and he's letting the nation of Israel know, you're going to be here for a while. This is 70 years. This is not just kind of hang about for a little while. This is multiple generations that are going to be growing up in this land. And so your job in the land that you're placed, that's not the land you're supposed to be in, this land you're placed, is to buckle down, to invest, to sow into it and seek the shalom of the nation you're in. So they are to seek the wholeness and blessing of the city they're in. Side note, as we're asking, how do all these things relate to us today? We are not experiencing the world the way God has promised it's going to be. We're not experiencing his kingdom on the earth the way he's called it to be. 
But our job in the meantime is to seek the prosperity of the city that we're part of. It's not to tear down the city that we're part of, it's to seek the prosperity of the city, to seek the shalom of the city, that the city would encounter a relationship with God, one another, and the land the way it was intended to be. Um, so this is the context they're familiar with. The promise was, go into the land, seek the shalom of the place where you're at. But the context that, 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 Jer- that Zechariah is talking about is a peace that's not that shalom. There's rest, there's no fighting, something's going on, but it's not the thing that he's promised. And so here's the warning that I want to give as we think about what this means for us today. It's this, beware of counterfeit peace. We've gone throughout the earth and we've found the whole world at rest and in peace. And what we tend to do in the church is we say, oh, great, things are peaceful. Like, our church is going well. Like, I like the people that are here. We might not be seeing people come to faith, but, uh, but we love each other. We love the Lord. We love the Bible. So it's all right, right? We're at peace. It's not the peace that God calls us to walk in. Um, and we can see it in the world round about us, and, and we hear people uh, outside of the church say this, like, why do I need Jesus? Like, the world is good. People are advocating for what I need. Like, I have money. I have access to what I want. There's resources out there to help in my place of need. Like, why do I need this? It's the counterfeit peace that we see in that passage. Darius came, this non-Christian person. He brought a form of peace and stillness to the world, but it's not the peace that God invites us into. Um, So be attentive to the false peace that you have bought into in the way that you pursue Jesus. Be attentive to the false peace that you've bought into multiple times in the Christian circles that you sit in, where we're just plodding on. We love Jesus, and so it's okay. Beware of the counterfeit peace that says things aren't too bad, so I don't really need to work on this issue in my life. I don't really need to fix this sin thing. It's not that bad. I, I can deal with life. And then be attentive to the false peace that is being celebrated by the world around us and know that our calling is not to walk in stillness and undisturbedness, but to bring the shalom of God to the place where we are. So as the angel listens to the message from these riders on the horse saying, we've gone throughout the world and it's at peace, you would think that as the Israelites are thinking, we're going to rebuild the temple, you'd think that an invitation to peace is like a good thing. Like, there's peace, so we can build without opposition, without trial, without trouble. But the angel understands that this is not a bad, this is not a good thing. And so his response, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, who you've been angry with these 70 years? How long is the cry? The peace that they were experiencing is not good. How long, Lord, will it be this way? And I say it this way. How long is the cry of the intercessors? As a church, when we're saying we want to step into more intentional prayer, one of the key phrases that should come out of our mouth is, how long, O Lord? How long will the people on our street walk without you? How long will the people that I love walk away from you? How long will we battle with these sin issues and not see the resolution that we want? How long until you return and bring your kingdom to bear? How long will kids be trafficked and mistreated? How long will women be abused and upset? How long will families be broken by divorce and the pain of that? How long will the church ostracize people who are longing for the presence of God? This is the cry of the intercessor. It's a technical phrase that you see all through Psalms and the prophets. It's the the cry of lament. 
And lament is not, oh dear, this is the worst thing in the world. What on earth are we going to do? It's a statement of faith. God, you have promised something is going to happen. And so the cry, how long, is saying, God, I believe that you've promised an end result. And it's not just a, oh, how long is this going to take? It's a, God, would you move? And would you move now? So it's, a, it's not a cry of defeat. It's a declaration of the promise of God. And it's an invocation for his presence to come and to change the situation. So as the angel hears the world is at some form of rest, his cry, understanding the heart of God for the world, understanding the heart of God for Israel as God's people was, the world is at peace. The promise was that peace would come to the world through Israel, that through Jerusalem, peace would spread to the ends of the world and all nations would be blessed because of what God did to Israel. The promise was not that Persia would bring peace to the world and Israel would be sidelined. So the cry on the mouth of the angel is, how long, God, are you going to have to sidestep your people to have your work done? How long are you going to remain angry at them for failing in what you've called them to do? And so he cries out with hope and invites God to move on his behalf. Let this be the cry that we step into as a church. What are the issues we see in the community? And let this be our language. How long, God, are you going to let this go on? How long? And what do you want us to do to mediate your presence to the people in these situations? I want to hit three more things, and these will go quicker. Again, what would the original readers have understood from the vision as it goes on into the rest of the story? First of all, they understand that there is consequence for sin, and we get this so messed up in the Western evangelical world, because on one side of the fence, you've got people saying, you know, the consequence for sin is if you walk with Jesus and then you sin, you lose your salvation. And you have people going over here going, well, no, Jesus loves you, so there's never a consequence for your sin. You're perfect forever we're going to be messy in the middle because that's the Bible, right? Um, There's consequence for sin. Look at the passage, verse 12. Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem, which you've been angry with these 70 years? Their sin led to consequence of exile. And then as he's talking about the nations that are feeling secure, I'm very angry with those nations. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. Implication, Israel, it looks like they're at peace and it looks like I'm favoring you over them, but I understand what they've done. I understand their sin and punishment and consequence is coming. Uh, There is always consequence for sin. Now, if you're living apart from Jesus, consequence from sin looks like you're going to spend eternity cut off from him unless you give your life to him. That's the consequence. There are also the other consequences. You shoplift, you, you get charged for it. You hurt someone, uh, people look at you a particular way. You, you walk in sin, it destroys your soul. There is consequence for sin. Uh, within the kingdom of God, it's, it, it, it's all the same things, but then it functions a little bit differently because the consequence that we experience is not you're going to be cut off from Jesus forever. We know that he saved us. There are consequences that our sin will do to our soul, to our body, to our church, to the community around about us. There's consequence. And the other side of this, remember, he's talking about the Lord of heaven's armies, who has an army of, of angelic beings ready to protect his people, 
and, and move on behalf of his people. And what happens, Colossians tells us, you know, we're rescued. We're rescued out of the dominion of darkness. And we're brought into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. And so as believers, we stand securely in the kingdom of the Son under a special protection and intimacy with God that he offers to us. We make choices to walk in sin, and we say, you know, just for now, I like it over here. That's the realm of God's protection. That's the realm where God says, I'm going to send my angels to minister to you and protect you. And so in those moments where we walk individually and corporately and sin, we're saying, God, I don't need your protection. I don't need the things that you promise that if we walk with you, you'll bless us in this way. And we take these moments where we step out. doesn't mean we've lost our salvation. But it does mean that we're taking ourselves out of intimacy with God. We're turning our back on Him. And the consequence is deadly for us. Um, and it will destroy our soul. And it will impact negatively the people around about. So there is consequence um, for the sins that we engage. And, and this whole uh, message from Zechariah is letting them know, like, what you're experiencing, Israel, is the consequence of stepping outside of the intimacy with God that you were invited into. So there's consequence for sin, but then we know there's grace in place for sin. So the promise is, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy. There my house will be rebuilt. The measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord. So proclaim further, my towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. So this promise was there. If you turn back, return to me, and I'll return to you, he says at the beginning of Zechariah. We know there's grace in place. And just by way of reminder, there's not the gracious New Testament God and the wrathful, ugly, horrible Old Testament God. This is another one of those beautiful moments where we see grace in the Old Testament as God had already prepared uh, the, the restoration that was going to come. He was already working to draw them back to Him. We know this truth well, sometimes too well, and again, we know this up here and not often down here. And so we can have people in here saying, you know, I just don't feel like God loves me. I don't feel like he forgives me. I feel like God looks at the things I've done in my past and he'll just never get over it. I'm ashamed of what I've done and there's no freedom. There's grace for this. And you've got to remember in context of this, Israel's sin was heinous. Like they're sacrificing their children in the valley like burning them alive to placate another god. Uh, they're, they're raping women and children. They're, they're intermarrying and adopting the worship of other gods. They're, they're engaged in heinous sin as they reject him and follow these detestable practices. And yet God's promise was, I will return and I will rebuild. There is nothing that we can do that is too heinous for God's grace to cover. There's nothing you have done that God looks at and goes, well, that's one thing too much. I'm kind of, we're not friends anymore. Like, that's not the way he works. All the way from beginning to end, the story is, it doesn't matter how far you go, there is always grace to cover it. So this, this description of his desire to return and rebuild and prosper the city uh, is something that would fill them with joy. Like, we're here, you're promising that this is going to happen as we do this rebuilding work. You will reside here again. We will see the peace that you promise, and that's what he offers for you today. He will rebuild, and he will change, and he will restore his presence in a way that's tangible for you. Last one, 
Tied to that, there is promise of restoration. Same passage. I will do it. My, and not just rebuild this, not just rebuild the temple in, in Jerusalem, not just rebuild Jerusalem, but all the towns are going to overflow with prosperity. And he's going to declare again his choice of his people. Um, so God is masterful at turning things around. Are you hearing divorced? God doesn't go divorce as the unforgivable sin and you're cut off from my people forever. You can never serve in the church. He says, I can redeem this situation. I don't want it to happen because I know the pain that comes with it. I can redeem this. Addictions, doesn't matter how addicted you are, I can turn this around and use you to rescue other people. Religiosity, doesn't matter how much you're trapped in religion and religious practice and the emptiness of pursuing the religious pattern without the rich intimacy with Jesus, I can take that and I can redeem it. What about a dying church? I can take what is dying and I can redeem it. God promises restoration. So whatever is in your life that you're ashamed of, whatever is in your life that you think is irredeemable, God can take that very thing and use it to build the temple that will inhabit his, that he will inhabit with his presence. I said I wanted to finish with the other part of Jeremiah. Let's look at where Jeremiah goes in the context and just see the similarity as this vision comes to, to Zechariah. So here's the rest of Jeremiah 29, 11, chapter 29. This is what the Lord says, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. You will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and the places where I banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So the peace that they were expecting, the shalom that was a counterfeit peace they were experiencing in the world, and this promise that God would return, they know the words of Jeremiah. They're so familiar with this passage. So as they're hearing these words, they're hearing that context, they're hearing what Zechariah is saying. And they're going, this is it. God is returning to his people. The paid are going to come to fruition. And so we sit here years later as part of the church. And it's the same invitation that he gave to them that he gives to us. I have these promises that I've given you. Promises to prosper you and to give you shalom and healing and wholeness. Promises that when we come together as the church that my presence will inhabit you and that will bring peace to you that will go out and bring peace to the world around about us. This is the promise. But God, remember, everything, we're going to do this every week, everything about these visions hinges on the opening message that we looked at last week. Turn to me and I will return to you. The end of the, the verse 6 says, and so this promise of the presence of God residing in a tangible way in their midst is predicated on them returning to him that he would return to them. So you want to see grace. You want to see restoration. You want to see prayer answered as you cry out how long. 
You want to see the Lord of heavenly armies moving in our midst. Then it comes back to that same place, turn. Turn from the brokenness that we've walked in back to the promises that he offers. Turn from self-reliance back to eyes fixed on him. Turn from fixation on our sin back to his ability to wipe it all out and use it for his glory. And then all of these promises we get to experience the way we long for, the presence of God in a new way in our life, the healing power of God working in and through us, the shalom of God in our community spreading in a way that will cause the city around us to prosper. That's the invitation that he's bringing us into. So um, first uh, Sunday of every month, we do communion together. So I'm going to invite Daniel back up and he's going to lead us in communion uh, as we remember what he did for us.